Well then, we've been talking about uh, a journey in the book of Hebrews. It's a bit of a whistle-stop journey. We've not done every verse, every chapter. But we've hit chapter 13, and we've been talking about how the family of God is a family that everyone wants to be in when it's working properly. And we uh, said last week, we've talked about loving the stranger, loving the prisoner, and all that that means, and the idea that those outside the family of God should be able to look in and see something they want to be a part of. And so tonight, we find that God's family has a display of sexual purity when they speak of and live in marriage that everyone should want. What's the difference between these two pictures? What do you see when you look at that picture? What's the difference between that and this picture? It's actually from a book um, that I found on Amazon that had like a one-star rating by some strange person. It's two ninety-nine. It says, how to know the difference between love, infatuation, and lust. I thought the picture was really interesting because when I look and compare these two, even in our culture, a culture that's not a Christian culture, you'd look at the first picture and see something that is perhaps more solid, more beautiful, more committed, something like that. And then you look at the second picture and it's something that if it was happening right next to you, you'd be sort of embarrassed a little bit, especially if you're British. You'd be kind of display of affection physically in public, you know, you'd be uncomfortable, uh, made uncomfortable by that. That's because I think they do represent something that our culture can see of a difference between love and lust. Between a love that could be uh, pointing to the love of God positively and a love that could only point to the love of God when we look at it and say, I wish there was something better. And so tonight we're going to think about how love, the love in marriage is meant to be a love that is reflected. And so the author of Hebrews says marriage should be honored by all. Where is it? I haven't written it down. Anyway, love reflected, marriage should be honored by all. Love distorted, and we'll talk about two dangers in that. And love protected, because this passage says that God will judge when love goes wrong. And so when we're thinking about marriage or actually any issues relating to sexuality, especially today, we really, I think it really pays to ask the question, what assumptions are we bringing when we try and answer the question, what is marriage for? Which was a question I asked you uh, to write on just a few moments ago. Because I think there's a broad and a solid foundation underneath the idea of marriage in this passage that the author is working with. And so here are some of the truths that we've already seen in the book of Hebrews that underpin this command to honor marriage. If you were to remember chapter 1, you would have known that God is a God who speaks, that he likes to speak about what he's created to tell us what it's for, how it's meant to be used. And that should mean that when we read the scriptures, we shouldn't be ashamed to say, for example, that in Genesis, God has created men and women naked, unashamed, is the God who created sex. And I mean, many people outside the church, oh, I can tell you a story about this, many people outside the church think that Christians are somehow embarrassed about the idea of sex in marriage. Well, no. I remember in assembly, 
where um, I said at the end of the assembly, well, whatever questions you might want to ask, whether it's about God, the universe, sex, masturbation, whatever you want to ask, any questions, ask, because the Bible has an answer. And I remember the next day, the head teacher came and he said, everything else in your assembly, fantastic. But that word you said, you know, sex and masturbation, can, can you just say, can you just drop that out for the rest of the assemblies in the week? Because the lady who was doing the sign language interpretation did not appreciate that translation. But the things have changed. When we are Christians, we are free to speak of God's revelation. Because it's good. Sorry, I set some of you off now with that one. I do apologize. If you were to remember when uh, we mentioned at communion, uh, last week or the week before, chapter 8, where when the author of Hebrews speaks about the tabernacle and the temple, they say that all the tabernacle and the temple were, it was a picture of a greater reality in the throne of God, and when Jesus goes through the curtain of the Holy of Holies, he is in the reality of which the tabernacle and the temple are only a picture. So this idea that you can have something here on earth that is a picture, a shadow of something greater is already in the book of Hebrews. That's what we're going to talk about when we see marriage. But not least, we've also seen in the book of Hebrews, particularly in chapter 4, that God's word cuts through our thoughts and attitudes because God really doesn't want us to be hurting in sin and unbelief when he has something much, much better for us. So let God's word cut through. That's why I think somebody like uh, Augustine of Hippo could say that our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And our hearts for relationship are restless until they find love reflected. There are certain things, Andy started this conversation a few weeks ago when he uh, confessed that he didn't know until recently how to eat a banana. And I'm going to tell you right now that there are all sorts of things that no doubt you don't know you've been doing wrong. I mean, do they even sell Tic Tacs anymore? Do they still? Is that still a thing? Yeah? But you know, my, the bane of my life was trying to share a Tic Tac and being ungenerous, but you're unable to be ungenerous because as soon as you topple it, you, you give away 50. And now it's in my hand, and I'm like a, or in someone else's hand, and I'm like a super hygienic person, even before COVID, and I, I couldn't be bothered to then pick them out of their hand and put it back in. But if I'd known that the lid has a special design so that you can pull out one and be ungenerous, my life would have been different. If I'd known that when I go to my fast food chain, I don't have to carry 50 little paper condiment things because actually they were designed to be enlarged. I mean, I'm yet to find, to put this to practice, uh, but you know, I'd be doing it wrong. Or I remember when I was a teenager and mom used to buy those yogurts that have two compartments. And, I, and I, it was just so much time with my little teaspoon getting in here, a bit of that, bit of this, bit of that. You meant to fold it in. Did you know this? Our primary, school, our primary school kids knew this, and I didn't know this. There we are. Okay. But when you then grow up and you discover this use, for, for the, you can hang it on, the, and it works. And he said, my life was revolutionized. You know, absolutely fantastic. It's easy to misuse something or miss out completely on its right use because of our ignorance, because you just don't know any better. 
equally, you can misuse this. You can misuse marriage. Let's find out what it's for. Because one of the things that when we ask the scriptures, what is marriage for? We find that it's a signpost and not a destination. It's a signpost and not a destination. Now, imagine the other week, I want to go to the great city of Nottingham because that is where my one comic book shop is and, uh, and I love coffee and there's some good coffee there to be had. And I'm trying to go there and I'm terrible with directions. I leave Chesterfield and I find a sign pointed to Nottingham and I go, yeah, hooray, much sooner than I expected. Some people said half an hour. I'm here within five minutes. And I park the car on the side of the road and I, I get frustrated. I don't see anything around me, you know. And I ask passers-by, I flag cars down, it says, I'm in Nottingham. Where is, my, where is my comic book shop that I've been promised? Well, people would think that I'm a nutter, wouldn't they? Just like you do tonight because of my use of that yogurt thing that I didn't know about. You would think that's ludicrous because you've got to look at not just a bit of the sign, but the arrow and where it points to. And in the same way, a lot of people would get married, get frustrated, or would long to be married and get frustrated that they never can because they misunderstand. They don't look at the arrow where it points to. I believe that if you do look at the arrow it points to, you'll see that marriage is good and to be honored, even if you are single, a child, or single for a season, or single for life, and especially if you are married. Now, we have a few people in the church uh, who are single, and so I asked a few of them. Um, he is one of them, and I said, I'm doing a sermon on marriage. Give us a single person's perspective, okay? Just tell us, what do you think? And so here's Julie, who is also sitting here tonight, but I thought it's quicker if I just record her, you know what I mean? So here she is. Thanks for asking. The Bible is clear that marriage, in other words, the lifelong and exclusive union of one man and one woman, is the closest human analogy of Christ's relationship with his church. So that's a love that unites across difference, male to female, human to divine. Marriage is therefore a picture of the shape of the gospel, love across difference. It's a tough calling and it needs the support of the whole church. Singleness is a picture of the sufficiency of the gospel, the richness and depth of the family relationships that are ours within the church family and the witness that Jesus is enough. It too is a tough calling and it needs the support of the whole church. So please don't apologize to single people for preaching the importance of marriage. I think just aim for that balance. Marriage is a witness to the shape of the gospel, singleness to its sufficiency. And we need both and we all need to be rooting for one another in our different situations. Preach, brother, preach. <laughs> She's done it. She's done it. I think we could just stop there. We could just stop there, you know. Um, that, was, that was plenty. And we're going to dig into that a little bit because one of the things that our culture just doesn't get is that marriage can be about more than simply, well, I just want to have sex with you again and again, so let's get married. Or something like that. So much so that there is no other conception of love in the TV shows and movies that we watch. And so this idea that marriage can reflect the love of God is a really strange thing uh, for those who 
uh, don't believe in the Scriptures. They can't see, for example, that God has the love of a father, and he speaks of that aspect of his love. You look at the book of Hosea there, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So the love of a father for his son is a picture of God's love. The love of a mother for her son or daughter equally is a picture of God's love for us. Isaiah 49, 15 reads, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Well, though she may forget, I will not forget you. God loving us like the love of a mother for her child. So God's love is built into creation as a way of being reflected in all sorts of relationships and not least marriage, where a man and a woman made in the image of God come together to also reflect a deep aspect of God's love. Keep a finger open in Ephesians 5, and I'll be referring back to it, because as Julie spoke, that was all I could hear. Ephesians chapter 5, from verse 21 onwards. And there are lots of controversial things there, and if you want to know my thoughts on some of them, you can go to our 1 Peter series uh, and go to chapter 3 in 1 Peter, because there's similar controversy there. But I think in this passage in Ephesians 5, and I'll be referring to you so that you can glance down at your Bibles, we learn that God's love is several things that are reflected in marriage. Look at, for example, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. We find that this love isn't just the byproduct of the evolutionary process. It's God-ordained. He creates the institution of marriage. And it's so deep in the intimacy that it's meant to portray that even in the Old Testament, it's a picture of our relationship with God. So much so that when God's people Israel are unfaithful to Him, I've already used the language there, it's called spiritual adultery. Like in the book of Hosea, what a beautiful book to read. Look at this verse. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, as a metaphor, for like an adulterous wife, this land, the people of the land, is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. All the way up from the prophets to the book of Revelation, where in chapter 17 we have this uh, metaphorical being, Babylon, the great prostitute who leads astray all of God's people with lies. And so you can read that at your leisure as well. So we find that this love, the, the love in, within marriage is meant to be God-ordained, that it's meant to be submissive. But as Julie said, we've been comparing this love to the cross, so that already in this God-ordainedness and submissiveness that is found in marriage, uh, if you picture a cross, you've already got this top-down, God ordains this institution that is meant to reflect His love, and we, side by side, the beam that goes across the cross, where husband and wife express that. This is a love that, again, a culture that doesn't know God can't possibly understand how submissiveness, setting boundaries and constraints, can actually be a positive thing. Like the constraints of a, you know, a little fishbowl are healthy for the fish. You see that in verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, and in verse 24, as the, Christ, as the church submits to Christ. So husband, wife, Christ, church. There's a beautiful metaphor there. And it continues when we say that his love is transforming within marriage. Look at verse 26. To make her holy, that's the goal of Christ and the church, 
cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And so by the word, we are transformed and made holy, ready to love God in a love that is preparation for our enjoyment of him throughout eternity. So Christ loves the church by investing in her good, by being an agent in her transformation, and in a similar way, that's what marriage should be like. The husband, an agent of chiseling and transformation for his wife and vice versa. And in that way, we see in that horizontal beam, the sanctifying of each other, just kind of portraying how Christ sanctifies his church. And so marriage in the Bible shows the shape of the gospel. It's divine, it's God-ordained, it's submissive, it's a cross-difference, the different male and female, and transforming. But if marriage isn't honored by all, how is the world going to see the kind of intimacy that God is inviting people into? Now, you might want to ask a question at this point. You know, does that mean that everyone is called to be married in order to honor marriage? I don't think so. Because after the fall, marriage does continue to be a picture of God's love for us, a picture of intimacy. But today, we are broken, aren't we? Marriage isn't as it should be. When it goes well, and we see all of these things I said being displayed, repentance, forgiveness, a chiseling and transformation of the spouse. When that happens, we go away desiring the love of God that it mirrors. We see a beautiful, I see a beautiful marriage, and I go, man, does God love me? What an amazing God he is. I want to experience that throughout all eternity. When marriage goes badly, we go away longing for the better display of it. Just like when we speak of the fatherhood of God, and there's someone sitting here who's had a really terrible father, we take that to God and we say, I'm so glad that you are a much better father. You are a much better husband than any other human being can be. And so we're called maybe not to getting married, all of us, but we are all called to get marriage, to get it, to understand it, and therefore to honor it, even if we are single or a child or whatever other season of life. But that means too, and I'm really challenged by this, I realized this when I got married, um, and you move from kind of, you're dating, so, you know, you do all the fun stuff, you hang out, you know, you go out on dates and everything, but then at the end of the day, you go back to your separate homes, don't you? Whereas then you, when you get married, all of a sudden you're in a situation of no escape. It's like you will be intimate. We will share all of our lives together. You will, uh, you know, obey me when I say you must put the, the toilet seat up or down or whatever it is. Uh, you know, I will show you up when I discover that you are just way messier than I expected and you leave the wet towel on the bed or you do also, you can picture here all sorts of annoying things that people can do. Okay, for my wife is knowing that I am extremely messy and if I can, I will leave the dishes clogging up the sink for a week. She would never have found that out if we just remained dating and went to separate homes. She never found that out. So she found me out now. The Bible does say your sin will find you out. And yet, here what challenges me is, if marriage represents the inescapability of intimate relationships, we need to remember one important thing. 
the single people in our church should still experience the intimacy that marriage is meant to reflect, but in the family of God. Why do you think it is that Jesus can say in Mark chapter 10, this, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. He is saying that anybody who loses a family, picture here a single person who becomes a Christian, who's rejected, disowned by their family, joins a church, now what they should experience is a new family that is intimate and close and reflects that love of God. And it's our responsibility as a church to be in and out of each other's lives in that way. That should so be the case that anyone who comes to our church and just thinks, I'm just going to keep coming here for years and years on Sundays and then I'm going to go home, they would be made to feel uncomfortable because people keep coming up to them and wanting to include them in their lives. That's how our church ought to be. Do our single people feel like family? Do our marriages here reflect this divine, God-ordained, submissive, across-difference, cross-shaped love? This gets us to talking already about the ways that marriage can go wrong. So love reflected, but also love distorted. Now I think there's all sorts of mistakes that we can uh, make when we come to marriage, but I think this video that we're going to watch illustrates one of them. Go for it. Sag mal, Papa, habe ich dich noch gar nicht gefragt? Wie kommst du eigentlich mit dem neuen iPad zurecht, was wir dir zum Geburtstag geschenkt haben? Gut. Mit den ganzen Apps kommst du klar? Was denn für Apps? Geh mal bitte nicht schnell zur Seite. it's the whole idea that you can be so ignorant of something that you, I mean, it, it did the job, didn't it? You can have an iPad and use it as a chopping board. It does the job. But you're missing out by distorting the use of the thing. And in a similar way, what a shame it is when people look at marriage, speak of marriage, but don't know what it was built for. And I think two mistakes that we can go through quickly, um, we can make. One is to underestimate marriage. And I think we do that. And I, I mean, I love doing school's work, and I miss not being able to do that at the moment. But um, whenever we do a Q&A, uh, and I've been, I remember doing a Q&A in an RE lesson, and they asked me to talk about marriage and things like that. And one of the kids said, well, there is no difference, though, is there? What is the difference between marriage and, like, just living together or just having sex together casually or something like that? It is just a piece of paper, isn't it? There is no difference. That's an underestimation of what marriage is meant to do. And sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking, as the world does out there who doesn't know and cherish the love of God, that if I sample someone if I have sex with them, to see if we can really, do we really go together? Well, let's have sex and find out. Let's live together and see if we can actually put up with each other enough. Completely ignoring that if marriage is what we've just said it is, to live together is not representative of a 
complete lifelong commitment that I think in our culture is best expressed in a legal marriage, in a legal commitment to each other. Because I remember talking to people, uh, friends of mine, if now I became a Christian, and one of the things that always struck me talking to them is that there is a sense in which a cohabiting couple, when they have sex, is a lot more restrictive because there's, an, there's a sense in which it's auditioning. If you're making out with someone, but actually they're just a date and they can walk out on you anytime without few, very few consequences, well, it's just auditioning, isn't it? Have I done well enough? It's constantly lights off. Man, I don't want to see all of me. And you might think, have I done enough? That's not representative. That's to underestimate the love of God displayed in marriage. Another way we can underestimate is to say, I decide what it is and not my maker. This biblical marriage can't be redefined because it's like putting a drop of arsenic in any drink. It poisons the whole thing. And another way that we underestimate, underestimate marriage is we can justify our sexual sins. We can believe all sorts of lies. We can say, well, I deserve this. I'm a single person. I've been waiting for a long time. I've been praying to God and he's not sent me somebody. It's just a bit of porn here or there. It's just a bit of a bit of flirting, a bit of fantasizing. And the truth is we forget the joy that we are fighting for when we fight for purity because the idea is not to be a killjoy, but to so enjoy God and His love that we don't want sin to get in the way. Back then, uh, in the book of Hebrews, they undervalued marriage by allowing husbands to be able to have multiple partners. There was such a thing as temple uh, sex, temple worship. You'd go and as part of your worship, you'd have sex with the temple priestess. Unless you think that something like polygamy is just in the past, wasn't it just this week? that the famous actor's uh, daughter, Will Smith, uh, Willow Smith, just went public and said, I'm polyamorous. I think it's good to be in a relationship with several people at the same time. And that's just normal. When we underestimate marriage, we fail to enjoy the love of God as it should be. And we can end up in all sorts of situations that don't reflect God's love for us and that hurt us. Like, for example, if we are uh, in a couple, but we end up living like housemates because there isn't that mutual self-giving that wants to best the other person just as much as God in His love that kneels down to us to bless us. Or we can end up suffering in silence because we long for intimacy and friendship, but we don't get it in our church family. Already, you know, when you're a teenager, you're at risk of under, underestimating marriage because you know the category of the people that I'm going to mention to you right now. And you can dishonor marriage by thinking or acting like this. For example, you remember that you have a friend or an acquaintance who is the wolf, right? He is the person that you've got your circle of friends and one of your friends starts dating and you never see them again because the wolf this complete stranger started dating this person and now all of a sudden they've taken them away from friends, from family and that's not a, reflect, a reflection of this idea that dating is meant to be leading towards marriage and it's a love that is self-giving. Or perhaps uh, you've been aware of the serial data, right? 
The person who thinks so little of relationships that over the last two or three years he's had at least a few, a few girlfriends, a few boyfriends. Because, you know, you've got to sample a little bit. You might not say that out loud, but that is how we live. That's a danger for you if you're a teenager or young person here this evening. But marriage can also be overestimated, can't it? And I'm going to give just one example of that. When someone says, and this is like, this is like every love song, right? I need someone who will make me happy. I need someone who will complete me. Man, what an unbearable burden. I mean, is there anyone here this evening who is married and their spouse makes them happy all the time? <laughs> I mean, by, by the response just right now, you know, a little chuckle. Um, we know the truth. That's a burden that's way too heavy to bear. But if we estimate marriage correctly and we say, Jesus completes me and all I do in marriage is try and reflect his love for me, that is doable by the power of God's spirit because that includes being able to say to my spouse, forgive me, I've messed up. I want to be more like Christ. I remember a friend of mine uh, who is, was single, uh, she's single and she sort of had this more rosy view of marriage and we were talking one day after she had been invited to our house several times uh, to spend, you know, a few hours with us at a time. And she just said, you know what? Now that I've seen a few marriages, I'm more okay being single. You know, it's a lot of hard work. I've seen a little bit, you and Megan, like, it's, it's hard sometimes. Like, you chisel each other out, you know. You love each other. I know that. But I'm, I'm less idolizing of marriage. But one of the things that God does not only does he expect his love to be reflected in marriage, not only does he uh, see that his love can be distorted, but lastly and very quickly, he wants to protect that love, which is why the last part of our passage, God will judge. Have you ever experienced a broken heart? Have you ever experienced being toyed with or teased by the person that you are really into and they knew you were into them, and they just kind of played with you. A broken heart, or this marriage love gone wrong, is a serious hurt. I'm not one to kind of say that there's degrees of sins, but there's something, isn't there, about sexual sin that is just so incredibly heartbreaking and painful in a different way. The more you experience that desire for love, the more you can see how much damage it can do. Because I think this love gone wrong is a betrayal of the intimacy that God invites us to. It's a betrayal of a whole person. And it's like the old story, isn't it? Where in every marriage course you talk about things like this, um, or certainly every youth talk on dating, where the boy, stereotypically, right? The boy comes in, and the boy is just drawn by, man, you're hot. You know, like, you are attractive. You know, you've got some serious curves going on here. Whatever is the language that is used, you know, today. And the girl comes in and she's like, I want intimacy. I want to feel loved. And in order for the boy to get the physical, he gives the emotional. In order for the girl to get the emotional, she gives 
the physical. And a lot of pain can go in that kind of selfish love that is unlike the love of God. Some of us who are parents here tonight, what if you knew that a wolf was coming to take away, entice away your little girl, your little boy that you love? Would you not fight fiercely to protect them? I think you would. I think that's what God does. Hebrews 13, 4, For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Love that isn't the way that God designed hurts us. And if left unrepentant, continues to hurt. And if our greatest hope as Christians is that we are going to live in a world that's renewed, where all relationships are pure and fixed because God will have finished sanctifying us, if that's our hope, how could God not judge sexual sin? So much so that in the book of Revelation, they stand outside of God's holy city. I think one of the ways that God judges now is in the book of Romans. You can write that down and read it later on. I'll read it to you. Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. The more we divorce the person from the pleasure, sex from commitment as God has designed it, the more we hurt ourselves. And as people come into the church, they should be able to see a better way. And we see that sociologically. We don't have time to talk about all these things. We see that pornography degrades us, degrades the other person. We see that sexual abuse causes trauma that is lifelong. And in all that way, we see why God would want to judge the sexually immoral. And yet God's judgment to come is well in the book of Revelation. Now, we don't have time to say much more, but let me finish with a few questions for you and for me. The first, just on the back of what I've been saying, if God's marriage love is meant to reflect his love for us, and I've just talked about sexual sin and all these things, my first question for you is, do you know that there is forgiveness? Do you know that God already knows the wickedest thoughts in our hearts and yet he invites us? He invites the porn addict. He invites um, the person who uh, has been in and out of relationships in a way that's unloving because he loves. Another question, do you get marriage even if you're not married? Is that the way you talk about marriage? You talk about it in a positive way even if that's not your calling. Even the children here tonight, children, do you know that mommy and daddy have a big job in trying to show you God's love and they sometimes get it wrong <laughs> forgive them and some of you are like yeah they do <laughs> you know? you're just you're raising your honest kids I love that that's so good single people is marriage idolatrous to you are you more in danger of underestimating it and saying don't need it or overestimating it and saying my life isn't complete until I'm married is that a danger for you those of you who are married do we consciously seek to reflect God's love, or do we forget when we are fighting and arguing with our spouses that even that God is using to reflect his love? Church, are we such a better family that any single person wouldn't feel like second-class citizens of heaven? 
And so in that, I challenge you and I challenge myself, really, that love is reflected, which is why we should honor marriage, that love can be distorted, which is why God says he will protect it by judging it and keeping it out of his new creation. Let's pray together before we sing our last song. Just a moment for you to talk to God. Lord Jesus, there are so many challenges here, and you know that all of us, whether we are single, whether we are married, we have inappropriate sexual thoughts. We have temptations. Those of us who are married, uh, we are tempted by people outside of our marriage, and we have to choose to deny ourselves. Father, help us to see so clearly the love that you have for us, that we are not willing to let go of it. We're not willing to give it up for any sin. Help us see tonight that for those of us who have been weak and who have failed you this week, today who have sinned in some way and not honored marriage in the way that we speak, in the way that we fantasize, help us to know that there is forgiveness, that you have come to rescue us. You've already known that, you, that we were going to sin, and yet you welcomed us. Please forgive us for our sins and help us to be a church that so reflects your love that anyone here in our neighborhood, outside looking in, would say, I want to be part of that family, glued by your Holy Spirit, by your great love. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.